Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Real quick here, before we get into the word, the Esther fast. I mentioned this last week and some people had some concerns. Uh, the, okay, here, here's the deal. Fasting will not kill you. Now, if you, have a, if you have health concerns, check with your doctor. Far be it for me to try to diagnose you medically. But uh, I, I just talked to someone this week, one of our elders, just wrapping up a 21-day fast, I think, today. And he wrote me, he said, thank you so much. He said, I used to believe that fast, if I went 21 days, I would die. He didn't. He just felt like he would die, especially when the, the cake came out. He sent me a picture of the cake he couldn't eat. But... Uh, so fasting will not kill you. Fasting uh, is, is really the, the body's way of healing itself. That's why when you get really sick, you don't, you don't feel like eating. Because it's a way for you to go into healing mood and, mode. And uh, you do, there is a mood too, but believe me. But there's a mode. And, and so it will replenish your system when you fast. And so we're asking people to sign up for a day at a time from now through November, because we want to continue to pray. Uh, regardless of how the election comes out, we're going to need to keep on praying. And uh, so we're going to do that. And, and, uh, but then next Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, uh, I'm calling an Esther fast. Now, some of you may not be able to do an Esther fast, and I understand. Uh, an Esther fast, if you look in the text, because I, w- I was challenged. Someone said, hey, no, surely the Bible doesn't say it. Yes, it does. No food or water for three days. Now, again, check if you're if you have a health issue, don't do that. Just uh, do something else. But uh, this is like we were saying on the video announcements. Uh, these unique times, these. Uh, unprecedented times demand unprecedented measures. And so we're crying out to God. The book of Esther, man, uh, this this will preach. I'm telling you, this book, it's an awesome book. The book of Esther is the story of one young woman saving a nation through fasting and appealing to the throne. Now there's literal and there's allegorical lessons for us to learn from that. Uh, and so Esther was one who had won the heart of the king, and she was the one that was able to sway the king and to release an edict that saved a nation. The very thing that was supposed to destroy it turned out for, the, turned out for Israel's great, one of their greatest victories in all their history. And so, but it was, she called a fast, and, and uh, there's, there's a principle I remember years ago, we had Paul Yadaw in. Paul's one of our spiritual overseers here at Heartland. And uh, he, he was preaching at our house of prayer, and he made this comment. He said, the book of Esther shows us that more can be obtained through intimacy than sackcloth and ashes outside the throne room. Mordecai was, was in sackcloth and ashes and, and uh, grieving. He was, in, he was in repentance and mourning mode. And there's a place for that, undoubtedly. But who secured the victory was the young bride who had won the heart of the king. And through intimacy, you can put it this way. More was achieved in the bedchamber than was achieved through the repentance outside the throne room. And it was because of that intimacy. It's an allegory of our intimacy with the Lord. And it's those who have developed that relationship over time. God is looking for them. It's for such a time as this that you have been brought to the kingdom. And so it's incumbent upon us to pray.
And uh, so uh, we're going we're to do that. We're going to have a fast next week and just jump in any way that you can. Saturday, or yeah, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Saturday night at 7, 7 to 8, we'll be in here in the sanctuary praying. Sunday night, 7 to 8, we'll be in here praying. And then Monday, we'll be down at the Capitol. I believe it's starting at 5 o'clock. People are going to gather. We're going to be overlooking the city and declaring. We're going to build a throne for King Jesus out of our worship. We're going to enthrone him over the city. And so uh, that'll be Monday night. And then Tuesday, all day Tuesday, the elections, we're going to be praying in the sanctuary. It's going to be open. You're, you're welcome to come out at any time. Uh, I want you to know, I'm, I'll, I'll be leaving about four and sitting in front of my TV, biting my fingernails down to the nubs, watching till about midnight. So I probably won't be here praying at that time unless I get real scared and then I'll run and be in here praying. But so now when, when some of you, uh, you know, we were talking like this, it may sound like I think that politics and the election is the answer for America. I do believe it's part of the answer. Now, if, if things go south, then, hey, we're, we're still going to pray and God's going to find another way. But we, my hope is in Jesus. But I have an obligation to this nation to pray for this nation. And so what I want to do, I, I, let, let me just back up. When I was in Bible school, we had this teacher, phenomenal Bible school teacher. Anybody out here know David Brown, Pastor David Brown at Eagle Vision Church? Anybody know him? Raise your hand. His brother was my persuasive preaching to teacher, Michael Brown. Not the Michael Brown on the radio, a different Michael Brown, but a phenomenal, and David's a phenomenal preacher as well. Uh, but Michael was a phenomenal preacher, and he used to tell us that preaching is not a shotgun where you spray him with truth, it's a rifle where you drive one point home. Now that's good preaching. But I'm not preaching this morning. I'm going to spray you with truth. Uh, this is more of a shotgun. I'm just going to, I'm going to unload on you this morning. Uh, I, want to, I want to address this whole thing. I want, uh, let, let's give this a title, an overall theme. I want to share with you this morning why I feel not only the right as a pastor, but the responsibility as a pastor to address political issues. Why I not only feel the liberty to address the elections, I feel a holy obligation to address the, the elections, okay? And so I want to talk about that this morning. Now, I don't believe that there is a political answer that, that is solely a political answer for our nation. We need revival, and we're praying for that, and I've been fasting and praying for 30 years for revival in America, and we're still pounding on that door. But one, part of the answer is for you and I to exercise this sacred trust that we've been given called a vote. Now, we've been talking, we've been doing a series for the last 70 years on prayer. Really, for probably several months now, we've been talking about prayer. And we've been having a lot of prayer meetings. And, and you know, Gene gave it a plug, and let me give another one. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we, we meet in here at 7 a.m. Wednesday, 6 a.m. to 8. And uh, we meet for prayer. And we're going to continue to do that. We're crying out to God for this nation. And I believe we're going to see an outpouring of the Spirit on this nation. But I do believe it's important that we also exercise our vote. And so, this whole, let's pray. <laughs> Father, 
I am going to venture where angels fear to tread this morning. And Lord, I do ask that you would anoint me and that you would wear me this morning. You would wear me like a glove. Lord, you would speak through me. And God, inflame our hearts. Lord, I ask that you would strip away every false belief system, every argument that sets itself against the knowledge of God. And Lord, I ask that you would set your people free to be the kingdom people they're intended to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Elections ultimately are an argument of ideas. They're about different worldviews. And one of the primary weapons the enemy uses against believers is ideas. Because ideas have consequences. Beliefs determine behavior. And when you believe a lie, you will behave wrongly. It may not be evil behavior, but it won't be adequate behavior. And so we need to see things very clearly. And I want to address some lies that the church has bought into in this day and age. There are, there are movements today that are designed to deceive the church. There are movements that are designed to entice the church to agree with Marxist ideas. And I just want to be very clear. Marxism is a demonic philosophy that has resulted in the death of literally hundreds of millions of people in the last hundred years. Hundreds of millions of people. And that's one of the reasons that Marxism has, in, as one of its primary strategies, is the eradication of history. They have to destroy your understanding of the past because one of its greatest, uh, one, one of the greatest detractions from Marxism is its track record. Scripture puts it this way. Wisdom is known by her children. In other words, the test of any philosophy is the results of that philosophy. It's not, it's not the immediate argument when we're in a sterilized classroom. Any argument can sound good. But how does it manifest itself in the second generation of its adherents? What is the fruit of a philosophy? When you apply this philosophy, what is the fruit of that thing? And so what happens is, is Marxists will try to rewrite history. They'll try to rewrite history in a favorable light for themselves and in a negative light for Christianity. And make no mistake about it, Marxism and Christianity are diametrically opposed to one another. Marxism cannot tolerate the existence of a strong church or strong families because the greatest, uh, the greatest uh, uh, risk for Marxism is strong families and a strong church. That is why Black Lives Matter, is a, which is a Marxist organization. Now, I want to I make very clear, of course, Black Lives Matter. And we've got to find some very real answers to the problems that are facing the United States of America and especially the, the black community because there is an, there is an, uh, 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 an uh, the, 
the uh, plight of the black community is greater than the blight in the white community. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I would make the argument this morning that the very answers that Black Lives Matter is asking for are ultimately the ones causing these problems. They are calling for the eradication of the nuclear family. They want, they, they're, what they're stating is that the, the, the family does not need a father in the home. And that is one of the major problems in the black family. And there are governmental policies that have been designed to accomplish that very thing. The remo- they've incentivized the removal of fathers in homes. And that is not a unique thing among black culture. Whenever you don't have fathers in any home, it is, it is devastating to that, those families. And so uh, we, we, need to, we need, I want to just say very clearly, I am not only, of course, black lives matter, but I am all for finding solutions to the problem. And there are very real problems, okay? But I'm telling you that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. They've now sanitized their website somewhat, but for several months, you could read it right there, what they were calling for, and their leaders are, you've seen the interviews, we are trained Marxists. And what they're really about is radical sexual ideology, the destruction of gender distinctions, and all of that. And, and so those type of ideologies are diametrically opposed to the scriptures because God established the church and the home for the protection of children so that we can grow up into healthy families, healthy adults, healthy citizens, and we can have healthy cultures. And so we need to understand that Marxism is a demonic philosophy, and the fruit of it has literally been the, the murder, not, not just the starvation, and, uh, but the murder of hundreds of millions of people down through history. And so we need to understand that up front. So we have... This war of ideas. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Our enemies are not people. My enemy is not the Democrat party. My enemy is not the Republican party, the independent. My enemy is not a Marxist. My enemy is the demonic philosophy behind Marxism and every other ism that would stand against Christianity. In fact, the people that are adherents to those demonic philosophies are actually the trophy in the battle, not the enemy in the battle. They're what we're fighting for. And so what did Paul say? He said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. And then what did he say? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So when he's talking about strongholds, he's talking about mindsets. He's not talking about something in the heavens, some stronghold in the heavenlies, where there, there's a, there are passages where you can derive that type of theology, but that passage is not it. What Paul is saying is there are strongholds, there are citadels made of thoughts, belief systems behind which the enemy hides. And out of which the enemy begins to try to take more and more ground. And, and one of the major 
responsibilities we have as believers is to surrender to the truth. Jesus, as Gene said, Jesus is the answer. To surrender to the truth, to be the truth, and then to convincingly engage people who don't understand the truth. And do it with tremendous respect do it with dig- dignifying the, the people you're talking to, but we need to speak up and we need to talk about these things. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God. But these weapons are for the tearing down of belief systems that are contrary to the knowledge of Christ. Because those belief systems are the very things the enemy hides behind. And he can begin to operate. And there are some belief systems that the church has bought into that has diminished her impact. And so I want to look at three of those this morning. Now, some of this stuff is not going to be new. I'm just going to tie it together in light of the elections and politics and, and our responsibility to vote. Now, we've, we've been talking about prayer. and We've been talking about how uh, God delegated the earth to man. And so while man is looking to God and saying, God, if you're real, if, you're, if you really love us, why don't you do something? God is looking at us and saying, why don't you do something? Invite me. Because God very clearly delegated the earth to man. Psalm 8, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man, you would visit him. You made him a little lower than the Elohim and put everything under his feet. And so God delegated the earth to man. It's reiterated in Hebrews chapter 2. And so God gave the earth to mankind. And he's not going to break or violate the system that he himself set up. So that's why he instituted this mystery known as prayer. It's divine intervention only by human invitation. And so we invite God's intervention. And we pray, thy kingdom come. But intercession is not just us releasing words in a, in a, in a sanctuary or around the table. Intercession also includes acts. God has delegated the earth to man. And so it's incumbent upon us to align our lives, to live the truth, to speak the truth, to preach the truth, to pray the truth, because we're in a a battle of ideologies. And so what God does is he delegates that to us. And we're to become the ones that carry the truth. Now, there's, there's three things I want to look at, three definitions uh, that, that uh, undermine our ability to be involved in the way we should. The three biblical definitions. Number one, the gospel of the kingdom. Number two, the church. And number three, apostolic ministry. Okay, those three things. The gospel of the kingdom, the, the church, and apostolic ministry. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. The problem is that we don't really understand what that term means. Now, we've talked about it before, so some of you have somewhat of an understanding. Some of you have a better understanding than others, and some of you, you think of the gospel as simply being reduced to a salvation message, and that is precisely the problem. And especially in the Western church, we've reduced the concept of gospel to the Romans' road and an invitation to surrender yourself to Jesus. 
It's something you do as an event and you say a sinner's prayer and that is the gospel. But I'm here to tell you this morning that that is a terrible reduction of the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is an all-encompassing message. It's an amazing message. So let's tear it apart etymologically, okay? The etymology behind these terms, the gospel of the kingdom. The first of all, as we know, the word gospel literally means good news. So if what you understand as the gospel doesn't strike you as good news, you either don't understand it or you got the wrong definition. The gospel ought to make you happy. <laughs> it's good news. But it's the good news of something very specific. It's not just general good news like it's not going to snow tonight. That would be good news. Or it's going to warm up. That'd be good news. But it's more specific than that. It's good news about something very specific. And that is the gospel of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, those two terms are uh, interchangeable. One, some of the gospel writers use one phrase, some of the other. Uh, but you can look at parables and one will, will use the word gospel gospel of the kingdom the other will say you know write the same parable and use gospel of heaven or the the uh the uh kingdom of heaven rather so uh because there are people that make a distinction and uh it's that's not a valid distinction so just understand that so we got the good news of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of god the word kingdom literally means king's dominion and this is very, very important for us to understand. Because usually when we think of kingdom, in a modern sense, a word kingdom is a location. It's a place. And so we're going we're gonna to go to the United Kingdom. And we get on the plane and we go over the pond, as they say. And we you know, get our British on. And we have tea and crumpets. And we, we go to the kingdom, uh, the British kingdom. But in a biblical sense, the word kingdom is not a place it's the, it's the rule of God. So it's not a realm as we think of. It's the rule over a realm. It's the king's dominion. It's his right to rule. It's his authority, his, his God-given delegation of authority so that he has the, the, the God-given right to impose his will in a geographic location. That is what a kingdom is. And you can see this reflected in, especially in Luke chapter, I want to say it's nine, might be 19, where uh, Jesus tells a parable. And he said, there was a nobleman who went off to receive for himself a kingdom. The NIV, I think, translates that word uh, in its basilia in the Greek. It translates that scripture, he re to receive for himself the right to rule. And that's a better translation. The problem is when you read it, you don't realize that's the word kingdom. And so you lose that meaning in every other place. So the word basilea is the right to rule. And the idea behind that was that Jesus was telling this parable that they were very familiar with. Because in ancient times, there would, they would have emperors. Caesar was the king of kings. He was an emperor. And then he would have vassal kings or kings under him like Herod. Herod was a vassal king to the emperor, Caesar, the king of kings. And so that was the, that was the structure of kingdoms at that time. And so Jesus came into this context. Context, and he began to preach about the kingdom of heaven. He was preaching the good news of the king's dominion. And then he would tell his disciples that God has given unto you a kingdom. 
And what he was saying is you are a vassal king under the king of kings and you have the right and responsibility to rule over your sphere of influence according to the edicts of the king of kings. And so when we talk about the gospel of the kingdom, we're not talking about a salvation message alone. That is, that is definitely a part, but that's actually the threshold of the kingdom. It's the door to get in, but there's a whole lot more to discover once you're in. And for too often, what we do is when we, when we reduce it merely to the preaching of a salvation message, we got a, a whole bunch of people huddled on the threshold of the door when there's this vast empire to occupy and to discover and to enjoy and to release on the earth. And meanwhile, we're all standing on the threshold talking about how great it is. And it is great, but there's so much more. Abram Kuyper some of you are familiar with him. Let me, let me read you this quote. I love this. It, uh, he, had, he had a statement, if I can find it here. I wrote it down this morning. I can give you a, a ballpark quote, but it's just not as good if it's not in his own words. Oh my, I can't find it. What he talks about is that... Uh, here it is, one here. He, he was, Abraham Kuyper was a fascinating guy. He was in the Netherlands. He was the prime minister of the Netherlands. He was a theologian. He was a politician, a brilliant guy. He started a denomination over in the Netherlands. It was the second largest. The Dutch Reformed was the first largest, and he was a Calvinist and a, a brilliant thinker. And so he said this, and his life was a reflection of his belief in this comment. Listen to what he said. This is one of his most famous comments. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I love that. Let me say that one more time. It just felt good. Okay. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That statement, and I would propose to you that is a thoroughly biblical statement. Yeah. That is what is meant behind the good news of the king's dominion or the gospel of the kingdom. Of the increase of his government and his peace, shall, there shall be no end. So what King Jesus did when he, he arrived and he started to preach the good news of the king's dominion, when he preached the gospel of the kingdom, what he's saying is, I've brought my kingdom with me. There's a new kingdom and there's a new king in town and the invasion has begun. And he began to expand his dominion one surrendered life at a time. And he continues to do so. And so in light of that, this, this is a little tributary off that. What we need to understand is every act of obedience and surrender towards Jesus, every act of righteousness is an act of worship and praise, but it is also us throwing ourselves behind his rule. It's us being part of the invasion, part of the, the kingdom of God coming because we're saying he rules in me and I'm going to let that show up in my life. And just as true, every act of rebellion and disobedience in our life is an act of treason against his rule in our life. And we are fueling the cosmic rebellion 
of these rogue entities to stand against the rule of Christ when we do these things. And so we've got to see things in light of that. Our lives really do matter. Everything we do. But what Kuiper said was that every, every facet of life, Jesus looks at it and says, mine. Out of this flows the concept many of you have heard of called the seven mountain mandate. How many of you ever heard of the seven mountain mandate? How many of you are unfamiliar with that phrase? Anybody seven mountain mandate? Let me, let me just unpack this a little bit historically. Uh, there's, there's a theology behind it which goes back to Kuiper, even back to William Tyndale talked about the seven gates of society. He was the father of modern missions. But in recent history, there were two gentlemen, one of which is still alive, Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is the largest camp. It's really the largest ministry in the world. Uh, and it's now called Crew. They've gotten away from Crusade because it has implications in the Middle East, which are, you know, it's, it's just not a good foot forward, good foot put forward in when you're trying to evangelize and calling it a crusade. So there's some historical implications you would understand. But Bill Bright and then Lauren Cunningham, who started the largest missions organization, Lauren is still alive, the largest missions organization in the world called YWAM. How many of you were former YWAMers? Wait, wait, see, we got them over here. So former YWAMers, great organization. And uh, Ed's done a lot of work with YWAM, done a lot of missions work with them, partnering with them. So both of them back in the 70s uh, were asking the Lord, God, how do we see nations come to Christ? How do we see sheep nations as opposed to goat nations? The, the, uh, the kingdoms of this world should become the kingdoms of our God. How do we see that happen? How do we see nations become uh, touched by the gospel, an expression of the gospel of the kingdom? They had a vision for this. They saw it in scripture. They began to ask. And Lauren Cunningham, the Lord began to speak to him, and he wrote it on a sheet of paper. Seven aspects of influence culturally. Seven mind-molding spheres of society. And he wrote them, out, wrote them down. There was government. There was family. There was arts and entertainment. There was uh, education. There was business. There was academia. And there was... Church. Oh, oh, not church. Religion. And let's pause there because that's an important point. And I, I had an argument, well, not an argument, but I, I differed with Lance Walna, who is like the guru on Seven Mountain Mandate. I talked to him about this. He didn't agree with me and he'll find out I'm right when he gets to heaven. That, uh, because he's talking about this thing as church, but the, that, other, that mountain is not church. The ecclesia is the church and the ecclesia brings the basilia, the kingdom, and it's to touch every facet of society. The other mountain is religion and it's religion that is a mind-molding aspect of culture. That's, you know, Leif Hetland is one of the primary ones. What he does is he leverages the religious mountain to preach the kingdom of God. He'll go into nations like Pakistan and he'll give, he'll, he'll have these, uh, award ceremonies and he'll honor the leaders of Hinduism in that nation which is not a large movement and Islam which is a large movement and other leaders within that nation for caring for their people because they really do care for their people and he's he's honoring them and through that then he preaches the kingdom of God the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 
So he's leveraging these mind-molding aspects of culture to reach into culture and shift it for the kingdom. Well, Bill, uh, Lauren Cunningham was writing down his seven, seven notes, and he was, he was thinking about that and praying about it and thought, that's interesting. But he could begin to see, yeah, this is how culture is shaped within a nation. And he gets a phone call. He was in, in the mountains in a cabin, got a phone call, and it was Bill Bright. And, and it was Bill Bright's secretary and said, hey, would, Bill would like to talk with you. He feels like there's something that he could partner, that our, our two ministries could partner on. Would you be willing to see him if he, were, if he were to send you transportation to get to him? He wants to meet with you for a couple of days. He said, absolutely. And on his way out, he thought, I'm going to grab those notes and share those with Bill. He gets to the hotel they're going to meet with. And Bill begins to share with him that the Lord has told him about how there are seven aspects of culture, seven mind-molding spheres that if we can begin to affect those areas of culture, we can see a nation change. And Lauren pulls his notes out and shows them. And so, so much so that YWAM now has a university of the nations where they're training people to, go, to penetrate every one of those facets of culture. How many of you believe that media shapes culture? How many of you believe that academia shapes culture? How many of you believe we need some Holy Ghost, godly, brilliant people in academics? How many of you believe that, uh, you know, I mean, all of them. We, we, need, we need people that are called and are going into every aspect of culture. And that's, that is the, the idea behind Kuiper's teaching. And so much so that Kuiper was not only a theologian and a church planner and a pastor, he became the prime minister of the Netherlands and shaped public policy to reflect the justice and righteousness of God. Scripture puts it this way. When the righteous multiply, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. It matters what philosophy is the governing philosophy. And you and I have a unique opportunity as citizens of the United States of America. We have been invested with this tremendous privilege and responsibility called a vote. We have this unique form of government that was based on scripture. Our founding fathers literally argued out of commentaries in the founding, the forging of our laws. And in the early days of our, our, in, in, the, in the Senate and in Congress, they would literally, if you look at the record, they would stand up and they would be arguing from commentaries. Wait a minute, what about Deuteronomy 25? And another one would say, yeah, I was reading a commentary last night that speaks to this. The whole reason we have the, the three facets of government is because they, they saw that in the Trinity, and so they under, and they also understood that because man has fallen, he can't be trusted with all power. So that's where that phrase, that idea that, you know, they, they embedded that in our, our governmental system that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So there's balances and checks so that nobody can just have all the power. And that's why this unique uh, experiment that we call the United States of America has afforded the greatest prosperity and the greatest liberty known in the history of mankind. Now, do we have our problems? Absolutely. But I'm telling you, there's, let, let me just pause here. The, the whole issue of slavery, which is a horrendous blight on our history, 
was a horrendous blight on every nation at that time. The question is not what nations had slavery. The question is what was done and who were the first people to overthrow it. And we spilled the blood of our sons to overthrow it. And that doesn't mean that there's still a wound. But what I'm saying is to, to judge nations by modern sensibilities is an error. And so we've got to go back. We've got to own those things, but to just paint it with a, a wide brush and say, you know, there's a move afoot right now to redefine American history by the, the, the arrival of the first slaves and not the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And that is a Marxist strategy to reshape history to begin to undermine the founding documents of our nation, our form of government, to create a, 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 a hatred for our way of life. And it's, it, it, they did the same thing in, in uh, the, the Soviet Union when they, when they began to turn that thing. And it's a, it's a common strategy among Marxists. And so Kuyper preached this thing about the gospel having an application to all of life. Every facet of life. And our problem is we either have, we've reduced it to salvation or we reduce the kingdom to spiritual matters. And the gospel has an application to all of life. Let me put it this way. God is very opinionated. He has an opinion about every facet of life. That was the context of Gene and I's conversation, that God has an answer. He has, he has opinions about things, and he wants to share them with his people. And we need to seek him for those, those answers to very real problems. Often, a lie that is told, uh, or a misinterpretation that it, uh, I would propose to as a demonic strategy, a demonic lie to undermine the impact of the church, is a misquote of the verse when Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, are you a king? And he said, you say that I'm a king. And then Pilate goes on, or Jesus goes on to tell Pilate, Pilate is this world ruler, he is a uh, proconsul, he had replaced a king because this king was such a jerk that the, it, the Jewish people said, can you put a proconsul over us? And that was Pilate. And so he's standing before this authoritative throne, a Roman throne, Jesus, the son of God. And Pilate thinks Jesus is on trial. But Jesus flips the tables and puts Pilate on trial. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Because what Jesus was saying is, Pilate, you're the one on trial today. And your answer to this question will determine your eternal destiny. Who do you say that I am? And in the context of this fascinating exchange between two kings, Jesus makes this statement. My kingdom is not of this world. Let's read the text. Let's read that. My kingdom is not of this world. It's uh, uh, John 18, look at verse 36. Or let, let's read verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? He's trying to corner Pilate. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. That is the key phrase. My kingdom is not from the world. When Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world, he's saying the source of my dominion. Understand, in a biblical sense at that time, when people used the term uh, basilea, he's saying my basilea, it meant the right to rule, my authority to rule. When Jesus said it in Luke, uh, he said there was a nobleman who went off to receive for himself a kingdom. That's the clearest expression of what the biblical... Uh, idea of kingdom was that they would go off and appeal to the emperor and say, could you give me the right to rule over this patch of ground? He'd say, yes, I crown you king. He didn't have the land yet. He had the authority to go and impose his rule over that land. And the, the kingdom was the right to rule, not the land over which he was ruling. Over time, it became the geographic region over which they ruled. And so when Jesus said, my kingdom, he's saying my right to rule is not from this world. He's not saying the impact of my kingdom or the effects of my kingdom or the interest of my kingdom is not this world. He's saying that my authority, the authority for which I derive my rule does not come from this world. It comes from above. I've been sent from God above. And without that understanding, much of the scriptures don't make sense. Why would Jesus teach us to pray, your kingdom come, your dominion come, your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is not saying, I'm not interested in physical things. I'm not interested in, in the world. I'm not interested in worldly kingdoms. I'm not in, all I'm interested is that you get saved. He wasn't saying that. Jesus is saying that my source of rule comes from above, but my interest is that it would impact this world. And we need to understand that because a, a, a misunderstanding of the basilea, the kingdom of God, reduces our calling to simply having people say the sinner's prayer while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. And so we are to be involved in every facet of life. If you are called to be a computer programmer, you are called to be the best Holy Ghost witness computer programmer the world has ever seen. And I believe that you can pray and you can get words of knowledge on how to write code that no one's ever seen. That you can be the answer, the kingdom answer in your sphere of influence. And you're to be exuding that character that other people will look at you and say, you're different than other people. And you walk that out among men. It's our kingdom calling. If you're called, whatever you're called to, you are called to show up as a subject of another kingdom. And it's supposed to be evident to all who rub shoulders with you. There's something different about this person. He lives by a different code. He lives by different values because you're living submitted to your king. And in that way, the kingdom of God is coming through you and it's being manifest by you. And that includes, yes, healing signs and wonders. Paul said the kingdom of God is not a matter of words. It's not just arguments. It's power it's the power to manifest his rule. One of the clearest examples of Jesus' rule showing up on earth 
is the eradication of someone's sickness. That's why Jesus would send his disciples out. This was Jesus' church planning evangelism method. He said, go out and heal the sick and then tell them the, king, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's really what he told them. Because it was a manifestation of his dominion over the physical world. And so it's, it's part of that supernatural element is definitely part of the kingdom, but it's not just healing. It's not just getting people saved. It's manifesting the wisdom of God in every facet of society, including government. And like it or not, politics is the way that we appoint those who will govern over us. And the people that we appoint to govern over us have a philosophy, a worldview, which will inform how they will govern us. And so you need to look at who's going, who you are voting for. Amen. Let me read you an interesting parable. There, I'm not going to get through everything this morning here. Let me read you an interesting little parable real quick here. Sorry, I don't have it in my, I don't have the address in my notes. It is a, okay, Matthew 29, here it is, okay, Matthew 29. Now my computer doesn't want to cooperate. Matthew 29, there's 28 chapters in Matthew. Okay, I'm just going to have to tell you the story, Okay. Jesus tells this story. He says, there's a father who had two sons. And he goes to the one, he said, hey, son, would you go out and work in the field for me on the farm? And the son said, going to get right on it, dad. And then he doesn't do it. He goes to the second son, he says, hey, would you go work for me in the field? And he said, no way, old man. I'm not doing that. I'm busy playing Xbox. This is a modern translation. <laughs> but then he he changes his mind. I think really it's the other way around. The first one says no. And then he, and so he get, he goes and he into the field to work for the father. And then Jesus asks this question, which one did the will of the father? I think that is a very interesting parable at this moment in human history, because there's something about us as Americans, something about human nature that would rather tolerate polite rebellion than rude obedience. And we would rather have someone who talks nice but does wrong than someone who talks wrong and does right. And the implication of what Jesus was saying in that passage is very clear. The one who did the will of the Father was the one who did the will of the Father. Now, okay, the ideal would be someone who talks right and does right. Let's be those people, okay? But my point is, wisdom is known by her children. Look at the results of a philosophy. What does it produce? What are they living? What, are, what is the fruit of someone's governing philosophy? And it's an important principle right now because I remember 
There's a well-known author. I'm not going to say his name, although I'm very tempted. Uh, he's, he, I'm sure he's a good man. I've got some of his books. And I remember when Donald J. Trump was running for president and he said he was a believer. Now, I don't know if John, Donald J. Trump is a believer or not. I, I, I take it at face value. I think he's got some growing to do at best. But I remember him coming out and saying, I just, he said, I don't ever get involved in politics. But when he said he was a believer and he talked the way he did, he said, I had to go on record. There's no way I could vote for that man. And he told his church of numerous thousands of people that very thing. And I found it interesting that he didn't do that when Barack Obama came out as a Christian and endorsed the murder of unborn children and gay marriage and the, you know, government-funded uh, mutilation of children with drugs so that they're sterilized for life because they're momentarily confused as a child about their gender identity. You see, and this, this is a reflection of this whole passage that people will tolerate things that are contrary to the word as long as they're said in a nice way. And I, hey, I, 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 wanna, I, I wish we had people that, I wish our president would talk different. There's times I thought, oh, you know, I wish we had a control button on Twitter, you know. <laughs> but the fact is the fruit of his policies, there's enough said. You know where I'm coming from. So, okay, real quick here. What time is it? It's 12 minutes till, oh my goodness. All right, let me, let me just jump into two other things that I think that we really need to get a right definition of, the ecclesia. So the Greek word for kingdom is basilia. The Greek word for church is ecclesia. The basilia is God's rule. The ecclesia is the avenue through which it comes. We translate the word basilia kingdom. We translate the word ecclesia as church. That is a very uh, unfortunate translation because church was really a way for King James to redefine the role of the church. Uh, it was from the, the ancient English word kirk, which literally means, you know, a place. It was a gathering place for the church. It was a, that was the idea behind it. He's trying to water it down because the word ecclesia in scripture was a governing body. Okay, it was, it was a legislative body that had authority to form legislation and execute it. Matter of fact, there were, uh, the, the Roman government had ecclesias, and it, it could, if you had two to three people representing the kingdom, you could have an ecclesia. Does that sound familiar? Wherever you see, find two or three in my name, there I am, and it was a governing body for the kingdom. Jesus borrowed this term because the Roman government had ecclesias where they would, there were actually those who would meet with the emperor, hear his heart, and then they would pull back and they would begin to strategize with one another. How do we realize what's in his heart? How are we going to legislate this? How are we going to build this thing? And they were known as an 
an ecclesia. Now, there were different uh, manifestations of the ecclesia, but they were gatherings of authoritative bodies of people. When they would gather in the name of the government of Rome, they became legislative bodies that carried authority. That was the idea. Jesus borrowed this term when he said, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus has an ecclesia, and it is an authoritative body of people. We are to be a governing people. We're to be a people that are down here moving governmental, I'm talking governmental over everything. We're to govern from heaven's perspective and shape human history with the purposes of God. That's true of nations of the earth, and that's true of our nation. And as citizens of our nation, we have increased authority to do so. We have increased spiritual authority because we are citizens. Now there is, let, let me just real quick touch on this. There, there is concern among some, and I think rightly so, about nationalism. Nationalism, there is a positive definition and a negative definition of nationalism. Negative definition, probably the greatest example of, of nationalism gone awry was Nazi Germany. The, the, what was called the Brown Synod. They were the Lutheran church that got behind Hitler because he had, he had restored unto them their national pride. They had been so beaten down in the war. And so they sided with him until it was too late. And there were a few detractors, men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood against Hitler and ended up, he went back. He was living in safety in New York and decided, I can't, I can't. Be here while my countrymen are suffering and, th and then go back and try to, uh, you know, help them heal from the ravages of war when I've lived over here. I've got to go experience it with them. And he was arrested and killed just days before the Allied invasion and he would have been freed. He's a great theologian, brilliant man. And he was very much involved in political affairs, so much so that he got involved in a plot to kill Hitler. And he believed he had a theological obligation to do so. Now, we don't have time to get into all that. <laughs> but this, this thing of nationalism, but there is a godly nationalism, not, not in a sense that we're saying, we want ours and we don't care what it costs anybody else. Just as there is a sense in which I am worse than an infidel if I'm taking care of other people, but I don't even take care of my own kids. I have an obligation. You say, well, that's wrong. No, Paul said, I am willing to die for the Gentiles, but I'll go to hell for Israel. He said, I would be willing to be damned eternally for the salvation of Israel. I don't even understand that. But I know he was being honest. He was under the inspiration of the Spirit. But see, Paul had a a deeper level of obligation and commitment to his people because he shared their blood. As a father in Israel, he had an obligation to give himself for their salvation. And you and I have a responsibility for this nation. It's not that I'm saying, I don't care about any other country. Man, I spend time in prayer for other nations. I travel to other nations. I give to other nations. I am zealous for King Jesus to realize his dream for every nation of the earth. But I have an extra obligation for this one because I live here. And Jeremiah told the Israelites, he said, pray for the peace 
of the city you live in because in their prosperity is yours. In other words, own the place you live in and become the answer. It's going to benefit you, but you are the vehicle through which God wants to bless the city and the nation. And I want America to be blessed so that it can become a blessing to the nations of the earth. And it has been a blessing. I'll never forget being up in Toronto, Canada in 2008 when the stock market crashed and John Arnott, a Canadian, getting up and he said, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters south of our border. And he made this statement. He said, because I personally wouldn't want to live in a world where the United States doesn't exist. There's a reason that people are trying to get in our nation it's because of the freedom and the prosperity that's been afforded us because of the moral memory of our founding documents rooted in the scripture. And we need to pray that we get back to those foundations. And it's not, it's not to the detriment of other nations. It is, it is for the benefit of other nations that America become the great nation that God intended. And so my prayer is this. I'm not praying that the United States would last any longer than God ever intended, but I don't believe she has fulfilled her destiny. So I've been crying out to God, God, I'm siding with you. And Lord, I'm asking that this nation would fulfill every purpose that you established with her for before she passes out of human history. I'm not, I'm not married to a nation simply because I live here, but I have an obligation because of God's purposes, and he's, but being one of them, I have an obligation to pray for it. Right. And in that sense, there's nothing wrong with a nationalistic uh, burden for that nation. Because if you don't care for your own, you're worse than an infidel. And you're not being prophetic if all you can do is point out the problems in a nation. Right. The old saying, it doesn't take a prophet to see dry bones, it takes a prophet to see an army. And you're not being a prophet. If all you're doing is seeing the problems we have, let's be the answer. And let's cry out because we know the real answer sits on the throne in heaven. And so we pray for those things. And as the ecclesia of God, we're called to hear, we're called to sit at the feet of the emperor and hear his dreams for our nation and then call, cry them back out to him and execute them in the earth and be the ecclesia, the legislative body and be the agent of change in the earth. That's what we're called to do. That is what the ecclesia is. It's not just a bunch of people that sit and sing songs and listen to sermons. It's people that are bound to the heart of the king. And we're, we are binding our life to see the dream of King Jesus for our nation and the nations of the earth. And we exist to that end. We give our lives to see that realized. And if you've been in these prayers, there's some mornings we've dedicated just praying for other nations. Man, there's, there's been mornings, man, I felt some real heat on the Philippines I don't know if it's because I saw Tisa that morning, but I, man, I saw the Philippines. I was just praying for the Philippines. Okay, one, one more thing. Got three minutes. Well, really little less. Apostolic Christianity. What is, what is an apostolic mandate? Uh, we've talked about this before, but it's, it's important that we tie this in. The term apostolic or the term apostle, apostolos is the Greek word. We look at that as... 
a holy guy that was appointed by Jesus and wrote scriptures, or a holy guy that was appointed by Jesus to plant churches or be a missionary, depending on what movement you're from. But I'm telling you, Jesus had an idea in mind when he hijacked that word, and he hijacked it from a culture that everybody within that culture understood it. And so when Jesus used the term apostle, they weren't wondering what he meant. It was a very enlightening word when he said that. And he took it from Roman Grecian military culture. There's a lot of words Jesus could have used when he prayed all night. and He was going to appoint his 12 guys, his 12 representatives. He could have called them patriarchs. He could have called them prophets. He could have called them papas. You know, he could have called them a whole lot, priests, all kinds of things. But he chose something that wasn't a religious term, wasn't used in religious language. He reached into Roman Grecian military culture and he used the word apostolos because of what it communicated. The first time we see this word show up in ancient literature, it's in reference to the leadership of a Grecian armada and it carried both the apostolos, the leader, and artifacts of Grecian culture. Because the Grecians understood that you don't just conquer people by military might or power, you have to disciple them in your culture or you'll have to refight for them later on. But if you can disciple them in your culture, they'll become like you. And the Romans elevated that to an art. And they actually had a position within Roman military culture, a general called an apostolos. And when they would go in and conquer a city, they would install an apostolos. And that apostolos, his job was to reculturize that city. And so he was going to reinterpret the arts entertainment, medicine, academia, uh, the, the, the family, business, all through the lens of Rome. So much so that if the emperor were to visit, he would feel at home. So it was to be in this city as it is in Rome or on earth as it is in heaven. It was a cultural mandate. And this is very clearly what Jesus was talking about. But if we don't understand the etymological roots of that word, we end up giving, tying it to some religious idea of a guy that's a church planter. And that's included, yes. That very well may be what somebody with an apostolic call does. But we are to be an apostolic church. The church of Jesus Christ, it has an apostolic mandate to go into all the world and reculturize it with the values of heaven. And we're to pray towards those ends. So when Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is an apostolic prayer. That is an apostolic idea. That all society is to reflect the values of heaven. And it's towards that end for which we live. And now let me close with this. If your eschatology undermines that possibility, you need to reread your Bible and go back and redo your eschatology. If your eschatology looks at things getting worse and worse as good news and things getting better and better as signs of a massive deception, then you need to go back to your Bible because you cannot sincerely pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done with gusto because you're actually fighting against your own eschatology. Eschatology is a study of end time events. If your view of the end of times is that things are gonna get worse and worse and the church is barely going to make it out. And that if there is revival, then that's a sign of deception. I've actually heard people say that. 
Oh, there's revival. Oh, that can't be revival. That's the end time deception because we know it's going to get worse. And when it gets worse, oh, it's just a sign of Jesus coming. And they have this incentive to let things get worse because in, in this weird, twisted way, they're helping Jesus return. So I'm saying, let's look at our theology. Ideas have consequences. And often our theology undermines our Christian behavior. And so we, ought, we need to understand, what is the basilia, the kingdom of God? What is the ecclesia, the church of God? And what is apostolic Christianity? All of them are about this invasion of King Jesus coming to the earth and transforming every facet of society. And you and I are the avenue. You, are, you and I are the conduit for that to happen. God has given you a basilea. You have a kingdom over which you rule. You're a vassal king. You've been given tremendous authority. And one of the ways in which you exercise that is with your vote. Realize that is a holy thing. And we'll give, we'll give an answer to God for how we exercised our authority. We really will. And so we want to be under the king and realize that whatever happens in the elections, our mandate does not change. That's right. We gear this thing up. It's about the kingdom of God landing and manifesting. Amen? Let's stand. That was a shotgun, not a rifle, I know. Let me give you five things to do. Okay, you're like, pastor, speak up. You got to speak up. One of, the, one of the strategies of the enemy, one of the strategies of Marxism is to intimidate dissent, to intimidate you and to jeopardize your job and your standing. I'm reading a fascinating book. I want, you, I want to encourage you to check it out called Live Not By Lies. It's interviews with people who grew up in communist countries and they're saying they're so concerned about our nation because they're seeing that when people talk about biblical ideas and conservative ideas, they lower their voice and whisper because they're afraid they might lose their job. That intimidation is giving in to the strategy of the enemy to destroy the Christian element in this nation. So speak up. Do it kindly. Don't be the one that's rude and obedient. Be nice and obedient. Speak up. Vote. Pray. Number four, keep praying. <laughs> and number five, be the change. Find your role. What are you called to? Find it and do it. Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you. Just lift your hands. Let's stand before them as Americans. Father, we thank you, God, for the privilege of living in the United States of America. God, that we, we've been afforded great freedom and we have great responsibility to the nations of the earth, Lord. God, that we would exercise it. Lord, we would exercise that responsibility before your throne. And Lord, we're asking God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, in every office up for election, Lord, every judgeship, Lord, every school board member, Lord, across the board, Father, we're asking your kingdom come, your will be done. And Father, deliver us from being people who pray in urgency, but become apathetic when the urgency is gone. 
Lord, help us to live as the ecclesia of God. When we began to go into this season of prayer, the Lord spoke to me about how we need to be a people who no longer begin to pray when things are almost far, so far gone that we almost lose it. We need to be a governing people so it never gets there. So Lord, do it in us. I pray you just bless each of these this morning, Lord. God, help us to walk with you. And Lord, if anybody differs with me on anything I've said, help them to love me anyway and help them to know my heart towards them is love. I really do love you. God bless you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.